Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Officer, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Hey guys, I think you'll really enjoy this episode. I had the opportunity to speak to one of our Border Patrol agents and he took me through a day in the life of, a major history lesson in regards to how Border Patrol was established and some of the misconceptions that are out there regarding their job and and how that plays out. I did have some major technical difficulties, so please disregard any audio issues that you hear because I was not able to get my system set up in time. So I do hope you guys enjoy the episode. And without further ado, here you go. This is my friend, everybody. He is a Border Patrol agent in Texas. And talk to me a little bit about how you got into that and what a day in the life looks like for you. Okay. Well, um, first of all, thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. And thank you for being an advocate and a platform for uh, law enforcement and guys like myself to be able to just take your audience, take your, your listeners into kind of a day in the life of what yeah. else we do. And I think that uh, it, it's fantastic that you're an advocate for us. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to uh, to share on your platform. Um, your question is to how I got into uh, the Border Patrol. Um, well, my, my background is I, I came out of the military. I, I started prior to 9-11 in the Army, and then I became a simultaneous member uh, after a couple of tours. I went to university. I studied uh, criminal justice, uh, pre-law, military science. I was an ROTC. Um, and, and through all that, interestingly enough, um, you know, I got married along the way, and I found myself years ago um, kind of getting frustrated the fact that here we are um, deploying around the world and trying to resolve issues abroad and the issues back home when we get back home are, uh, you know, chaotic and uh, discombobulated and causing social frictions and, uh, you know, disruptions to the American way that service members right. have an oath to, to go elsewhere. Uh, and so... Um, I'm, I'm a put my money where my mouth is kind of guy. I I, uh, I applied. I signed up to join the patrol, the U.S. Border Patrol. Um, this was back during the George Bush, the the, the curtailment of the George Bush years, um, and right around the time of the the election of his predecessor. Uh, but prior to that, so yeah, immigration has has actually. I, I mean, I could take you through a history lesson if you could let me. Of the entire yeah, absolutely. system um, to to kind of just give a snapshot, if you will, because I think it's a it's an issue that is entirely misunderstood, and if it's brought into the proper context through um, validated, I mean, this is all open source information. I'm I'm not disclosing any state secrets or anything like that. I mean, people can go right. down to their library; they can hopefully be able to get on a, a search engine and find out anything that I say. Uh, here oh, come on. You know, nobody's actually going to do that anymore. They they don't do that. Otherwise, news organizations wouldn't exist. But, yes. But I, I challenge your audience. I challenge any listener. Uh, 
verify anything that I say here today. Um, look it up for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Uh, for starters, I, uh, I'm, I'm quite humbled and I'm following behind the, the CEO of Team World and a U.S. House of Representatives, <laughs> Mr. Hollingsworth. So it's very humbling that a, a small town boy like myself, uh, followed those two, um, individuals in those two interviews. So I hope to do it some justice. But, um, one caveat. I, I go by Luke Taylor. It's a pseudonym. Obviously, for purposes of, uh, my own security, for the security of my family, a lot of people in law enforcement who are engaged online, um, we don't use our actual identities for obvious reasons. Um, we live in a cancel culture society where people can be doxed out uh, just simply for, as what Plato once said, um, that no one is more hated than the one who speaks the truth. I believe it was Plato who said that. So, I mean, just speaking truth today can be even um, be accused by those who don't want to hear it. So, again, um, anything that I say, look it up, verify it, challenge it. If I'm wrong, call me out on it. You know, educate me. I'm, I'm in the process throughout life of continuous education. So, if I'm wrong on something, I would love to be presented with uh, what is correct. So, a day in the life. Well, the process. Let me just take you through the process of becoming a U.S. Force. Yeah. So, so like, when you got out of the military and decided, okay, this is the route that I'm going to go, what, if somebody says, you know what, I'd like to work on the border, I'd like to, you know, secure our country, what does that look like? Um, well, I was actually in university, and our ROTC was having, like, a job fair at the time, and they put our military table right next to the U.S. Border Patrol, the ATF, the DEA, and they all had all these, like, cool videos playing of guys riding around on helicopters, riding around on ATVs, riding around on horseback. This was the Border Patrol. Um, you know, night vision operations and uh, you know, all this stuff. It was very familiar to me, and I, I, I thought, wow, like, this is um, – this this is almost the same job as the military and we got to talking to the guy he kind of interviewed me uh you know what was my background what did i do for the military i told him he said man i think you'd be a great candidate and so you know i went home i thought about it i applied and uh the application process is it's pretty strenuous there is obviously uh a tremendous emphasis on your background for security reasons um, because we do work for Department of Homeland Security. That's our parent organization. And we are to be entrusted with the fidelity of our nation's borders and its laws uh, and its and its citizens. We are going to be armed with weapons provided by our agency 24-7, on duty and off. And um, so they need to find out, number one, do we fit that fidelity? Are we capable of being... Uh, of sound mind and sound background. They don't want a bunch of people who have questionable backgrounds and questionable connections working for the agency. There's a physical, you have to be physically fit. Um, you have to be emotionally fit. There's psychologically fit. There's, there's many different tiers to just even being a, a candidate. Once you get through that process, um, you can then be an applicant to go off to the U.S. Border Patrol Academy. And the academy is um, many months long. It also includes a language course. If you are not already a proficient speaker in Spanish, they send you to an additional step of the academy, which is Spanish. Um, at the academy, you're going to learn 
exhaustively um, the law, the laws by which you have legal authority to enforce. And it's, uh, I guess, the first misconception in being an agent of the law is that once you're a federal agent, you're going to have the authority to enforce, you know, all the laws on the books, right? Right. Um, that's that's not actually accurate. Um, you have jurisdictions, and our excuse me, our jurisdiction falls within immigration law. All right. So yes, if I see someone committing a felony, I have the you know the obligation to uh, to intercede until the the appropriate authorities, state, local, municipal, or even federal, arrive. That sort of thing. But um, our primary emphasis in law enforcement for the U.S. Border Patrol is our nation's laws on immigration. However, if you go over to the DHS website, you can pull up the mission statements for our agencies, our parent agency and the agency of the United States Border Patrol. And most people, one misconception that might be out there, is that they don't realize that our primary mission as U.S. Border Patrol is to secure our nation's borders against the threat of terrorism and weapons that can be used against our population centers by terrorist organizations. So our number one mission is the absolute security to make sure that there is there is not a back and forth of these terrorist organizations that can infiltrate our country. Um, we do have a lot of major cities along our borders. Our borders aren't just the the imaginary line that runs between Mexico and America. Our borders go all the way up the coastlines from Florida to New York, from San Diego all the way up to, you know, Alaska. So, and then across between, you know, Canada from Maine to, to, you know, Washington state. Um, So it's profound, the mission that we have. I'm interested in the the foreign language because I think the perception is that oftentimes we are not sensitive to the cultures that we're dealing with. So talk to me a little bit about what that looks like. Okay. Is every agent trained extensively? Is it you know the you know the heavily used? Like how does that work? That language training um, is it like well, a DLI situation, like in the military where you go and you get your yes. in, okay? It's immersive. However, I mean, um, the majority of the people employed uh, by the U.S. Border Patrol, they are native speakers because that is the language, their, their primary language that they grew up with in their homes. There are many patriotic Americans whose first language that they learn to speak in their homes is Spanish, that English is their second language. And they're in the employ of the United States Border Patrol. Um, and I serve beside these men and women every single day. And they're the most patriotic, most constitutional supporting people that you would ever want to know. Now, when they hire individuals from outside of uh, the, the areas where Spanish is a primary language, say they hire somebody from North Carolina or from Maine or, you know, Detroit, um, that have never spoke Spanish, but they have to have a proficiency test to get into the patrol to see if they even have an aptitude for the language. Then they go to the language course because where you're going to be deployed as an agent is along the geographical 
line between Mexico and the United States, somewhere California all the way to Texas. That's usually where uh, junior agents start out. So the probability of encountering someone who does not speak English at all is very high. So therefore, for mission essential uh, capabilities of every agent, it is required to speak Spanish. So um, they give you that, okay. and it's a several-month-long immersive course in Spanish, and you it's pass or fail. You, you, you don't make it, you know, pack your bags, you're gone. Um, that's, that's what it is. Now, we don't just encounter uh, only Spanish speakers. We, we encounter Chinese. We encounter people from India. We encounter people from all around the world, people from Europe, people from the continent of Africa, um, everywhere, uh, because, you know, trying to come into the United States, um, it's a lot of border to cross down there, and it's sometimes right. easier to get into Mexico um, illegally and then come north than it is to try to enter America mm-hmm. illegally elsewhere. So that's kind of a hot spot destination. So I want to talk to you just because – so I I came across, and because my computer is not working, <laughs> I don't have the exact article to cite. However, I did write down the five, quote-unquote, misconceptions that people have about the border. And their argument was that these things are not true. So I want to ask you, because I live in Indiana, so obviously I've, I am landlocked, centrally located in the country. I personally am not affected, at least seemingly affected, by a lot of the things that take place on the border. So I'd like to hear from somebody who actually physically works there, kind of, you know, what that looks like for you. So, um the first one, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border is violent, yes or no. Would you say that the encounters that you guys have are violent encounters? Are we talking about, you know, gang members that are coming through? Um, when you try to stop somebody, are they aggressive, or is it just kind of a defeated, oh, well, shit, I got caught this time, I'll try again tomorrow? There is a mixed bag of individuals that we encounter. Um, The vast majority, there is a vast majority of people that we encounter that are are not combative individuals. Um, They do try to evade. uh, They do try to escape. Um, They give us a good good show of it, and we (laughs) do our best to to track them physically and and apprehend them because that is the mission of the enforcement part of our job. Um, We do occasionally encounter combative individuals. I can throw some statistics at you from, I believe, 2017, and I believe the number was somewhere around 700 U.S. Border Patrol agents that year were assaulted in the um, apprehension phase of enforcement. Um, Now, that's a, a workflow, a workforce of about 21,000 agents, so 700 out of 21,000. That's that's particularly, I would call it a high amount of of assaults for one agency to endure. Um, right. Inside of inside of the the geographical, the, the geospatial area, of the United States and American uh, Mexico border, 
that is territorial on the what we call the Mike side, the Mexican side. There are different avenues of approach, and those avenues of approach are controlled um, by various what our government has identified as narco-terroristic organizations, uh, cartels, organized crime. Um, they, you can call them many different distinctions, but they are, for all intents and purposes, they are human trafficking organizations. Any person that we typically encounter um, who is attempting to enter the United States or has become successful at entering the United States and now is trying to evade interception has been trafficked. Uh, if they have not, it's it's rare. But most of them have to literally pay. Um, they They have to pay to cross and they have to pay these organizations. So, I mean, it brings me to a point to answer that question where you're talking about perceptions of America that's removed from the geospatial border of America, and they're wondering how is this affecting me where I live, right? Well, right. If, you are, if you are for the enforcement of our laws and you want people to come to the United States, but you want them to do it the proper way, then that makes you against human trafficking. If you are for open borders and anyone can just pour across and into the United States, then by default, you are supporting human trafficking. And right. the majority of the humans that are trafficked are below the age of 18. So that means you are pro-child trafficking if you support illegal entry into our nation. And I, mean, so, I I could go into many stories about encountering children in these austere locations. So, so when when we see these images on television and things like that of the uh, children in cages and all of that stuff, and I, I'm, I imagine that the scenario that plays out is person tries to traffic child that doesn't belong to them into the country as a means of, of claiming asylum or whatever. And okay. then when that's identified to not be true, that person is deported. And then what do you do with the children that you've identified are not theirs? I'm going to attempt to, as best I can uh, from my perspective to unpack that question. Um, okay. From the perspective as an American, right, growing up in any of the mm -hmm. 50 states in America, we have uh, Health and Human Services, we have Social Security Administration, we have uh, the Offices of Vital Records and Statistics. Every child born in this country in any hospital, they get documentation of birth, right? It's authentic. Right. These documents are, are verifiable. They're legally binding for your life. I still have my original birth certificate when I was born. I'm sure you have yours. That's because in this nation, we have not had, uh, up until recently, uh, any revolution that has overturned and had those records destroyed or their authenticity question, right? We have a continuity from 1776 to 2020, right? Um, right. But when we're talking about other nations like El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, we're talking about Middle Eastern countries that have been ravaged uh, for literally uh, the greater half of the last century with conflict um how can we 
actually accept the veracity of paper documents? How can we really know the identity right, sure. of someone, right? So um, these are things uh, that have been uh, by the policymakers. These are, uh, you know, the, the, the wonks up in Washington that look at how do we determine uh, who an individual is. And that is why we have biometric data. We, we link biometrics. So we try to, uh, as best we can with the records that are available to us, not just locally but internationally, uh, we try to authenticate and, and the, the identities of individuals. Um, yes, it is absolutely true um, that there are children that are deliberately brought in by people claiming that to be their parents, but we cannot validate that. And so once again, as an agency of laws, as enforcers of laws, we we don't craft the laws. We don't interpret the laws. We enforce them as they are written, as they were passed by each Congress, and as they uh, were, in, in fact, signed into law by each president. And then we are given the policy by which and the guidelines by which to affect those laws. And depending on administrations, the, the policies can um, can dictate based on limited resources where we focus our energies, right? Um, but... Ultimately, I mean, yes, it's it's a it's kind of a loophole. I guess that's the buzzword out there uh, in the media that there's there's loopholes. Now, a lot of times they are uh, identified as an intact family. We can um, we can verify it. I mean, if a child is old enough to speak and talk to us, and they can say, yes, this is my mom, this is my dad, you know, like a 13, 14 year old child. I mean, obviously, right. you know, we 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 have ways of of saying, okay, we we do have the benefit of the doubt. But there's there's other steps here. We have we have extra layers of of that, and that goes into a completely different direction. Um, and, and like I said previously, I'd like to unpack that. Let me let me take you through a little history lesson here about the law. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, we have to we have to establish legal terminology here versus political terminology. Okay. For example, right. the legal termina- terminology of an immigrant or a legal immigrant, right, versus um, the political terminology of a migrant. Okay. Those are right. completely they're they're often interchanged in the mass media for the crafting of a narrative or a perception. For the audience to digest, it leads them to, you know, pre-established conclusion. But when it comes to the law, um, there's either someone who enters the country lawfully or otherwise. I mean, it's right. very black, black and white. It's why it's the law, right? So going back in time, a little history lesson for your audience, if you would indulge me, is the Immigration Act. I believe the very first Immigration Act occurred in the United States. I want to say it was in 1924. And it was out of the first great war, the World War One. And like I said previously, we were trying to determine the veracity, even back in the 1920s, of all of these people coming to our shores. I mean, thank, thank God, thank God that America is here to absorb people leaving things that are you know, atrocious, ravaged by war, famine, uh, disease, pestilence, all of these things that were happening throughout Europe. We were taking people in by the boatloads. And so much so that our Congress had to say, whoa, hold on a second. We can't take everybody. There's, there's, we gotta, you know, separate those that can be absorbed into our society without destroying it versus those that need to be excluded. 
We don't want, even back then, we didn't want criminals, war crimes, people, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, but we wanted, we wanted people that would assimilate into America and build America and make America even more than what it was previous to 1924. Um, and this went on for, I, I would say about 40 years until the 89th Congress finally in the 1960s had to take another look at how the original immigration, uh, bill was vetting people to come into the United States. And see, the first bill had a quota system. It was like based on raw numbers. Uh, you know, X amount of people can enter the country uh, every month. I think it was in the hundreds of thousands. Once you reach that quota, uh, they were held somewhere or they were, they were turned back. Ships were turned back. Um, so in the 1960s, they looked at that and they said, well, there obviously were some reasons why people were turned back. Um, certain ethnicities were excluded. Uh, and it was uh, causing geopolitical problems globally. Um, most people don't realize this, but one of the ethnicities that was excluded in that act in 1924 were Asians. People from Asian, Japan yeah. specifically. Yes. People from Japan specifically in the language written by our Congress and enacted into law and signed by a United States president and was reviewed by the judicial and never challenged uh, up to a point was to legally and lawfully exclude people based on their ethnicity. Now, today in 2020, uh, we have obviously transcended that. We look back at that and we say, thank you. We're glad that that was stricken down because that is obviously an error. But we're talking about 1920s um, right. a viewpoint, right? This was a prevailing wisdom. And it, obviously, if it wasn't prevailing, it wouldn't have been agreed upon by our Congress. So, But that's the beauty of our Republic as a beauty of our constitution. We can look at things and as we progress as a society, we can amend them, we can fix them, we can make them better, right? So looking right. back at that, in the 1960s, they phased out this quota system and they brought in what's called a merit-based system. And it's a lot like getting a job where you have to, uh, the veracity of your identity has to be established and your background has to be somewhat established and make sure you're not a, a you know a criminal. And so they began with terms like crimes of the moral turpitude. That sounds really confusing and kind of sophisticated, but basically what it means is you're not a rapist, you're not a murderer, you're not a you know a person that embezzles money from grandma. You know, you're the kind of person that might want to set up a business in America. You know, the person that might want to work in a factory. You you have some kind of skill set in construction. You might um, be an educator coming from, you know, Bavaria and you've been to university and you're an intelligent and enlightened philosopher. I mean, there's a merit system and that has to be established. And that's what they first um, did with the 89th Congress. And all of this, like I said, is open source information. Anybody wants to um, pause while I'm explaining this, go over to the Center for Immigration Studies website and most of this should be right over there. Um, and, and probably ad nauseum detail greater than what I can uh, suffice here. So the, the Immigration Act was not uh, reviewed again until 1986. The 90, what, 99th Congress, 98th Congress revisited it, and it was um, Tip O'Neill was the uh, Speaker of the House, a Democrat. This passed a Democrat House in 1986. And they were reviewing the previous Immigration Act, and they reformed it. And this was for them to take a look at our 
amnesty policies because there was a lot of change in the last half of the last century where people were now seeking uh, to come to the United States as dissidents from communism. Cuba, primarily, was one of the major um, emphasis that our Congress had to figure out what to do because, I mean, most uh, people that are, you know, in their 40s, 50s, obviously in their 60s will look back and remember the, the crises in Cuba. Um, they were dissidents by the boatloads showing up on our shores. Well, what do we do with them? They're not here legally. They didn't come through a port of entry. They don't have documents. What do we do, right? So this had right. to be – the Congress needed to act. This is why we have congressional leadership. Hey, we have a challenge. We have a problem. We need a solution. Get to work, right? Roll up your sleeves. Don't come out of there until you have a solution to this. So they established an amnesty program or an asylum program. And so the legal definitions for asylum have to do with a terminology known as credible fear. There's a credible fear that if we, uh, we, we deport you back to your country of origin, that the government of your country is going to torture you, they're going to execute you, uh, they're going to imprison you, you know, et cetera, things that are inhumane and things that America um, vehemently stand against. Um, there are many monuments in Arlington to prove that statement, that we stand against uh, tyranny and and horror all around the world, and we have ever since this nation was founded. So 1986, it was revisited, and they... So, wait, I want to touch on that real quick before you go further. Yes. Yes, so, what you're telling me is that economic detriment, meaning that being poor isn't a justifiable asylum claim. According to what the Congress, led by Tip O'Neill, codified into law, um, not that I'm aware of, ma'am, no, that there are, okay. there's a very specific legal definition for a person seeking asylum to the United States based on credible fear, a fear of being returned to their government, being sent back to their country of origin. So I hope that. So do question. you think that you did? And because my point is that that's often what's used as as a reason. Now you have lawyers advising them, don't say that's the reason. But it's my understanding that that is oftentimes the individuals who are seeking asylum are they're they're just looking for a better opportunity. And I'm not saying that's good, bad, or ugly. But there are mess. You, you're paying coyotes to bring you over the border, but you're not paying to go through the immigration process properly. Like it's that. That is once again, in my opinion, and I do not speak on behalf of my agency. This is simply my own personal statement here. Right. I believe that once again, that is squarely upon the shoulders of our elected representatives in Congress to come to another solution. Um, because once, like a history lesson, we had a, once upon a time a quota system, and we went to a merit-based system. But the populations of these countries are going up, up, up. I mean, what was the population of the Earth in 1924 versus 2020? How many billion people have been born since then, right? Um, these are challenges, and we, we can't find... Um, Albert Einstein had said it best, like, we cannot... Um, have Continue to solutions do the same for the, thing over yeah. and over. 
but I think he said something in the lines of like, we can't have 20th century solutions using 19th century philosophy. Something to that. Right. Well, we're in the 21st century. We are not able to solve, uh, 21st century challenges with laws and philosophies and conceptual, uh, political ideologies of the last century. So I, I would, hope that our congressional leadership understands this and um, directly yeah, I don't think they do move towards yeah they need to move towards a solution not a political solution but a solution that the American people demand and deserve um, and support and is fair and equitable right I mean but again right. like, you 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 have you have guests over to your house I, I would assume that your audience every single person who either rents a property, lives in a property, or is over at grandma's house, right, sitting on the porch. I'm going to lay this out in layman's terms, right? Do you want someone visiting grandma's house on Sunday afternoon? Do you want them to come in the front door and announce themselves and be known to all, and someone there vouch for them and say, oh, yeah, I know this guy, blah, 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 therefore there's a veracity of vetting process, and you are at ease with them being inside your home, or do you want someone coming through grandma's upstairs window at 2 a.m. and she has no idea who that person is, right? right. Our, our legal system is, that's a snapshot of, of kind of where Americans, like we're talking, uh, we're talking dinner table America, right? Uh, breakfast table America, mom and pop America. That, that's the, the layman's way of looking at, well, this makes sense for my home, this should make sense for my nation, right? Um, that is the voice from America that needs to be brought to our elected representative government to look at the solutions from the perspective of the constituents, I would think. That's, again, once again, my uh, my own opinion on it. But if, if you want to get back to the, the previous um, conversation about where all these – you mentioned kids in cages. That, that kind of um, raised a, a little bit of a, a flag for me, and I just want to clarify if I may – uh, with that latitude, where does all that come from, right? Where does that perception come from? Why are we even having to separate children, right? Right. Perspective here for your audience, for, for the American people, okay? Um, law enforcement, when we apprehend somebody and put handcuffs on them, we take them to a detention facility. These facilities, once again, were designed and have been built in the last, you know, 20, 30 years, most of them. Uh, there's a lot of them that are being updated recently uh, in the last decade, probably starting in like 2009, if my memory serves correct, and really ramped up and since 2014, 2015. But these facilities are mainly uh, for adults. We were not prepared. Right. We're not. We're not equipped. Our mission has never been to detain children but I, I want to I want to take an apolitical approach to, to really unpacking this okay this is not a Democrat mm -hmm. or a Republican issue um, this goes back to the 1990s actually and there was a court case I believe in 1993 and it was Flores versus Reno does that ring any bells you ever heard of it no. Reno is in Janet Reno, which was the Attorney General of the United States. Oh, United yeah, States, yeah, yeah. Right? Now, that case was brought by a, uh, a, a plaintiff or a plaintiff of the, the name Flores. And I believe they were out of Honduras or, or El Salvador, Guatemala. One of, one of the 
the other countries south of, of Mexico. And it was because children during the 90s were being uh, detained in these same areas with um, other people that we could not establish the veracity of, of their, you know, connection to these children. They were all just kind of held in the same, you know, bays, what we would call a detention bay, where we have, like, maximum occupancy. Once we, you know, get to that point, we find other places to, to house people. Well, I would assume back then that they, they weren't really separating out. And it goes without saying that the, the bad things that can happen to young girls or young boys if they're held in with people that we have yet to really um, identify whether or not, you know, are they hardened criminals or are they just here looking to, to find work and feed their families? I mean, until we really process them, we don't know what we have, right? So while they're being held right. there, there's, there's things that can be, you know, happening to these people. So the courts looked at it and they said, oh, well, you got children in the mix? They There was an injunction and they issued, I think it was like a 72-hour, you can't hold a child once you have somebody that's that's you know they're a child, they cannot be held with adults, any adult, not even their parents, and they have to be turned over to child services agencies, right? And so this entire perception of kids in cages, right? Um, I would like to just personally say I I do not believe that that is accurate. You know, children are not being held in cages, certainly not indefinitely. We have. Uh, the Flores ruling, it is a court order, and the governments, not just the federal government, but all governments have to abide by it, is my understanding. And I can give this, again, as a kitchen table uh, perception for um, Americans to digest, okay? Let's say Luke Taylor here uh, goes and has a few drinks, right, and I get above the legal limit. And I throw the kids in the back of the car, and I'm taken off down the road, leaving the family picnic, and I'm headed home, and I get pulled over by the local sheriff, right? Um, now, do my kids go to jail with me? Do they get locked up at the county jail with me? Or do my kids get turned over to – now, does dad get to say, well, those are my kids, so I shouldn't go to jail because I should be kept intact with my kids. So if my kids can't go to jail, you should release me too. Do, do you think that's going to fly? down at the local no. magistrate, or is he going to throw the book at me and, and throw me in jail uh, until my beard is long and gray because I was driving around with children while intoxicated and rightly deserved, I would think. So um, same thing goes here. You're, you, once it, you're breaking a law, a federal law, a U.S. immigration law, uh, coming into the country, and you may have a child with you. And, and we are not without compassion. We understand that. But again, we have court orders, the Reno uh, order that we have to go with, the, the Flores order, and we follow that. So every administration, that was Clinton, then Bush, then the Obama administration, now the Trump administration. So administrations can get into the weeds with each other and say, oh, this wasn't my policy, this was the last guy's policy. Well, well, that guy is going to say, well, this wasn't my policy, it was the guy before me's policy. Well, if you go back far no. enough, you're going to come to 1993, Flores versus Reno. And this was during a Democrat president's term that this was established. So we, I'm not going to sit here and blame Obama. I'm not going to blame George Bush. I'm not going to blame Trump. There, there is no blame. This is simply one of those, it is what it is. If there are juveniles coming across while in the commission of a crime, and I can cite to you those actual U.S. code crimes. There's 8 U.S.C. 1182. It establishes 
what is admissible and what is inadmissible. It establishes where you are to be admitted and where you are to be excluded at a port of entry, meaning you either cross at a physical port of entry along a border or you fly in on an airplane and you go through customs and they check your passport and they determine whether or not your documents are valid and that is actually indeed you on the document and you physically present and you then can come into the country if you possess a valid passport and visa, et cetera, right? But if you go in between those ports of entry, right, you are now inadmissible because you were not inspected. And that that leads me to, I mean, here we are in some more weeds. Don't you think we would want, especially during the age of COVID, the age of H1N1 swine flu, during the age of uh, any other potential um, outbreak, don't you think we would want customs agents inspecting every single person coming into our country to make sure that they're not bringing with them a, a disease yes. that could potentially wipe out our populations, our children, right? I mean, if there's yes. not one thing we should agree upon, all of us as Americans, is this the, the, the health and well-being of all Americans, of all political affiliations and all religious stripes and, and anything. I mean, I, I don't want I don't want anyone to get sick because I was remiss in my duties, you know? So, yeah. uh, just, it, we should, we should want this. This should be an easily agreeable thing for every American. And like I said previously, anybody that's completely against that, well then, you're, you're pro swine flu. You know? I mean, if you're, if you're anti-inspecting <laughs> someone coming across and wanting us to check them out and do our jobs and put our lives at risk while we check these people out, then the inverse of that must be true. You are pro-COVID-19. You are pro-Ebola. You know, you are very pro-swine flu if you're against us doing that. Do you guys encounter a lot of that? I mean, where people have infectious diseases? Like, have you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let me think. I've been exposed to swine flu, tuberculosis, scabies, covid just as of right now, just in this sector alone, um, and other sectors, we've already had laboratory agents die of COVID-19. It's not making the news, but we have, we've buried several of our own. We've had hundreds in quarantine. We've had, uh, the vast majority, and there's been a bunch hospitalized. So we are literally on the front lines with it. Because, Do you think that um, that's put our border at risk? Do you think that I mean, obviously it does because it's putting people like you are having to run longer shifts because you're covering for people who are out. Do you think that... I don't believe our border is at any more risk than it was prior to the the COVID response. I believe that um, the administrators and the decision makers and the policy makers have had contingencies long in place waiting for anything like this to happen. And the okay. response, um, the response to that was ready to go. Um, we, we have protective, uh, you know, PPE. We have protocols to follow. Obviously we still have a mission to accomplish, but no, I, as far as like being more at risk for America, um, the, the, as the manpower needs have, have waned, we, we can relocate out our, our resources. We can bring guys from the northern border down to the southern border. We can reallocate. We can shut down, uh, some operations. We can get rid of the horse patrol guys. We can redeploy them to the river. We can move guys out of collateral details. We can put them back in green uniforms. We can redeploy them. Um, that sort of thing. So no, um, these contingencies are well prepared for, I believe, and they are 
adjusted uh, as the mission adjusts. And ultimately, I mean, we signed up for this, so we understand what we're getting ourselves into. None of, we're not a conscripted military. We are volunteers. We are patriots. We are people that love our constitutional republic. We love the American people. We love our nation. And we want to see it continue to thrive and continue to uh, be a beacon of light for other nations to bring people here legally um, who want to become Americans or just want to shop here or just want to open, you know, a business here or get educated here and take our education back to India, take our education back to Japan, take what they got here, you know, and spread that liberty right. abroad, you know. So that's, yeah, I, I don't think Do you think that – so number two on this list is the border is a terrorist hub. Do you see – I know you said, I mean, there's large, vast numbers of people coming across the border that are not – specifically Latin American or, or Mexican, so to speak. Do you think that, that there are there are terrorist individuals who have ill intentions for the United States coming across the border? I, I think there have been some news reports that have reported, um, like what, what I, I've read, uh, like sleeper cells that have infiltrated and are held up somewhere in Mexico, right? Uh, and that they're seeking to, to cross into the United States. I think the latest soup du jour on that was that there was like an Iranian uh, special forces group or something that had infiltrated through Venezuela and backpacked their way all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, Tijuana or something. Um, me personally, I, I think that the threat itself is one that our policymakers and uh, our administrators take very seriously. However, I don't think that the credence that, uh, you know, behind every bush is an Iranian terrorist. I don't, I don't want the American people to think that at all. However, I mean, if we do encounter those types of individuals, um, we're not going to let that make the news. And I don't think, I don't think that that's very newsworthy. That's up to, uh, other minds to determine how much of that information we even probably want the American people, you know, to know about. So in my right. in my personal experience, I mean, you know, did, did I capture Osama bin Laden coming into Mexico? No, that that's never happened for me. But yes, the the potential is still there. I mean, if you leave your front door unlocked, I mean, a stray dog could come in and you know get to your refrigerator. So, um, it, it's it's taken very seriously, and there are contingencies for that, and there's training, and there's. Uh, uh, mission uh, elements for it. I mean, like I said, if you go to the DHS website, that's our number one mission is to stop terrorists and weapons of mass destruction. So, yes, that is very much on the forefront of what we do, but that is not our day-to-day encounter, if that answers your question. Do you think that do you think that the wall has been a, a positive thing for Border Patrol agents, or do you think that it was a waste of money? The wall. Um Walls are effective. If they weren't, you wouldn't have a fence around your property, right? Um, right. There wouldn't be these private communities in America, that, you know, gated communities, that wouldn't have walls around them. Um, there are politicians that have walls around their homes. Um, our, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., there are walls everywhere, you know? Um, right. Walls are effective in so much that they are a, uh, a barrier for furtherance, right? They will only slow you down or deter you or defer you to another location. However, 
I want to stress this point. Walls do not testify in court. Walls do not place handcuffs on criminals or, you know, people who are apprehended. So they are a, uh, a tool among many tools and they are effective. I can give you a, a very good example from my experience. There was an area in California, south of Imperial Beach, I believe, um, that th- there was this great open field that was there. And they would, uh, on the, on the mic side, what we call the mic side, um, there, there would be dozens, if not hundreds of people that would, um, gather together and do what we call a bonsai run, where if there's only like 15, 20, 30 agents there to try to, you know, enforce that one little football field size area, but 300 people just rush. I mean, how many people can you effectively stop and detain while the rest just get around you? I mean, it's just logistically impossible. So um, the funding was procured through Congress, and they built a barrier, wall, fence, whatever you want to call it, in this area because it was such a large area of activity, of entry illegally into our nation. And as soon as that barrier went into place, uh, statistically, you can go and look at those numbers yourself. It's all open source data. Um, the number of apprehensions in that area plummeted like 90-something percent. So it is verified by the data and just logic that barriers work. However, uh, it's not geographically feasible to build a wall from to Shining Sea along the U.S. southern border because, number one, I mean, that's thousands and thousands of twisting and turning miles, number one. Um, right. So just trying to do it would be uh, akin to, like, the greatest, you know, uh, Great Wall of China, uh, you know, construction project that America's ever seen. Now, yes, we've been to the moon, so it's not like we're not up to the challenge. However, uh, the next thing is, is it really absolutely necessary? The terrain is so austere and, and, and inhospitable and almost virtually unpassable in some of these locations that you'd literally have to be insane, absolutely insane, to try to cross hundreds of miles, uh, especially in the summertime, of some of this terrain because there's no water out there. There's no civilizations out there. I mean, there's no cities. There's no. There's nothing. Um, Look at, uh, pull up Google Maps and go to Big Bang National Park, right? Look at just the Google pictures on the, the geospatial data that's on Google Maps where you can pull up any picture. Look at the terrain. Look at the rockiness, the dryness. I mean, uh, check the weather report out there. There's no water. There's nothing for miles and miles and miles. And imagine trying to trek through that in 100 plus degree heat for, you know, 60, 70 miles before you can reach a road. Um, now, the U.S. Border Patrol agents, we are uh, physically fit and adapted to such terrain. Uh, we train in it. We live in it. You know, we practically raise our families in it. So we're, we're very well uh, accustomed to this. But somebody coming from the little latitudes down around Guatemala, now they're, you know, different um, weather pattern and everything else, and they're not accustomed to walking through deserts because they virtually grew up in a jungle. Um, think, of, think of that. Uh, so we wouldn't put right. it all there. So, yes, um, as a, uh, an employee and an agent, yes, hearing about the wall. Uh, for me, the, the the discussion of the wall is more about getting the American people to realize that, hey, there, there's still a challenge down here. There's still something that our Congress 
needs to address. <laughs> this is not going away. So a wall is more of a of a uh, a talking point. It's more of a bullet point. It's more of a yeah, build the wall. But I mean, build the wall. That is, you can extrapolate on that in, in such a degree that it can take you so many places to understand the the details of these challenges. So a wall, where it makes sense, uh, is is fantastic. However, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of um, property rights, and a lot of the the terrain that is along the border is in the hands of citizens. And I don't think that we should just go and secure their property either unjustly. They should be compensated. They should have a voice in whether or not they even want a wall on their property. I mean, that's the American way, right? If you don't want it, you know, there's there's ways for us to go about that. Uh, imminent domain and all that, so I don't want to get into that. But um, and, and then there's the, the aesthetics of a free society. We are we are a free country, and we want people to come here effectively. Um, what are the optics of us closing ourselves off to the rest of the world? So with all of that, I mean, it's it's a it's a big, big, big issue when you just say build a wall, right? Um, I I have other proposals and solutions in my head that I think would be. Uh, simultaneously a benefit, not just a wall. We can technologically patrol the border now. Like I said, I mean, trying to use uh, 7th century wall technology when we live in the 21st century. We've got satellites and we've got the, the X-31 or whatever it is, X-29 space planes flying around up there. Uh, we have drone technology. We have uh, capabilities that can loiter up there. We have all kinds of, I mean, What's the guy's name? The guy that's blasting cars in outer space and making batteries, you know, battery power. Elon Musk. That guy, right? <laughs> Get that guy on the council, man. He's one of the sharpest dudes alive, right? I'm did sure you see the video today? Out. Did you did you see that, um, I think it was BMW has made, like, actual Transformer robot cars? Have you seen that yet? No, I, I, I have not. I'm oh, kind of my God. I'll see if I can find the video and send it to you, but it's so amazing. My eight-year-old self was, like, geeking out on it. It was very exciting, but I think that's more like preparing to fight aliens than it is fighting on the border. But um. Well, that's a whole whole other interview. You know, different kind of aliens, right? We're not talking about illegal aliens. We're talking about extraterrestrials. Extraterrestrial aliens. Let me check my notes here, but I really don't know if extraterrestrial aliens are an excludable According to the well, that's form, true. They could so. technically be illegal aliens. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, wow, so you know, the last thing that infinitely more interesting if that happens. It <laughs> could, yes. <laughs> I want to talk real quick. You because you kind of touched on it, so I want to talk a little bit about resources. When you talk about ideas that you have, I mean, we're allocating millions and billions of dollars to a wall. Why are we not allocating? that funding to things like when we talk about drones, I feel like if we're able to pinpoint terrorists in foreign countries, why are we not able to monitor our border as closely? Or are we doing that? You know, do you feel like Border Patrol has the resources necessary for us to protect our sovereignty? I think as any agency would answer that question, I think that we have the resources and we are able to use what resources we have, but obviously uh, we can always use 
more resources. But every wall, mile of wall we build, we could we could fill the sky with drones. Um, we could bulldoze every tree to the ground and, uh, you know, put lights out there and generators. I mean, we could turn this into a completely militarized zone, but it does us nothing. It does no good whatsoever if the men and women who perform the function and the mission um, aren't taken care of first, right? Which right. leads me to segue into understanding what's called pay parity for the United States Border Patrol. I'd love to challenge your, your audience and your listeners to look this one up. Um, are U.S. Border Patrol agents legally paid overtime for hours performed inside of their mission beyond the eight-hour established shift under the Fair Labor and Standards Act? Would you be shocked to find out that we have recently, through Congressional Act, have been excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act? Now, if I worked at, say, a sandwich shop, right, uh, a chain mm-hmm. sandwich shop, what's your favorite sandwich? If you could go get a sandwich right now, where would you go? Penn Station. Like, okay, so if I worked there and I'm the guy slapping the mustard on your sandwich, right, and they made me work past my eight-hour shift, there's a law for that that says, hey, hold on a second, private employer, if you're going to force somebody to work beyond eight hours, they're compensated you must pay time and a half, right? That's overtime, right? That's the law. It's called the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, we're exempted from that. We were exempted by the Congress during the last administration. We're given what's called compensation time, comp time. But for every hour of comp time is an hour that an agent, when he takes it, is not at work. So your previous question. Really? Yes, ma'am. I want to run some numbers at you because I was kind of expecting, because I've listened to your podcast, and you do your homework quite well. So I wanted to be prepared. (laughs) I didn't want to be taken uh, taken off guard. Um, the United States Border Patrol, by Congress, we have to have 21,000-some hundred agents uh, on duty, like in our roles. Like that is the number that Congress says that's how many agents work for your agency, right? So it's a simple right. math. Um, anybody out there like me who's math challenged, kick your socks off. You might need some toes for this. Here we go. All right. So you got 21,000. 21,000, that's a big number. Wow, that's a lot of guys out there. I feel safe right now, right? I feel secure. There's 21,000, like, trained patriots out there right now patrolling the United States border. But let's talk about how large that border is. Think about it in your mind. Like, think of the the map of the United States, right? So 21,000, I don't even know how many, like, linear miles our entire border is. But 21,000 starts to sound a little bit. Small once you consider Small. the geographical right. challenges that we have, right? Now let's divide that twenty-one thousand. Let's start subtracting some numbers first, okay? There's there's supervisors. Okay. There are people that are administrators and supervisors that actually manage the manpower, manage the equipment, manage the needs. Um, they handle all the logistical planning and execution of our mission, but they're not actually on patrol. They're patrol agents, but they're not out there on foot. You know, standing on top of a hillside with binoculars in their hand. They're in an office. So for our non-military public. civilian audience, that's like you were commissioned officers that never actually went Correct. enlisted. So. Correct. And they're, they're actually, they're, there's actually a rank structure. They wear military-style rank from captain's bars to major to lieutenant colonel to colonel to general. They, they, they have a rank structure, right? Um, so those are administrators and supervisors. 
So automatically, just out of the 21,000, with generous numbers, I'm subtracting 1,000. Just 1,000. That's a, that's a generous number, just for that. So we're down to 20,000, right? So now, right. inside of my agency, there are people that are on details. They're agents that are working with the JTF, uh, the, the Joint Counterterrorism, Joint Terrorism Task Force, JTTFs. And there's like, I don't know, two dozen of those around the, the country and all major cities. And they are on task force for that. There are people working with ATF, with HSI, with DEA. Uh, there are people tasked out as liaisons to local and state authorities. They work in command centers. They're in uh, other cities that don't even have a geographical border, places like uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, places like, I mean, in the interior. So I'm going to subtract another 100 just for guys off, off doing that. Just that's a generous number, 100, right? There's guys yeah. internally that are on collateral duties, right? Collateral duties are um, people that are agents, I mean, like myself, but then they work internally at the station to manage the the repair and maintenance of our equipment. We've got ATVs. We've got horses to feed. We've got canine teams that need dog food, um, that need vehicles repaired, tires that need inflated, replaced, uh, spark plugs to count. Oil, oh my gosh, I, we changed the oil in these trucks, like I can't tell you. Uh, that stuff has to be recycled. The fuel, right, the fuel purposes for all of our equipment has to be uh, constantly managed because without gas, we can't get to where we need to go, right? So those okay. people, I'm going to take a generous number of 100, right, right off the top, right? Uh, so now we're going to get down to individuals that are out sick, right? At any given time, anywhere coast to coast, I'm going to say maybe 100 guys that were supposed to be on duty are now off duty. 100. That's a generous number. All right? And now we're going to get down to guys that are just on leave or regular days off, like me. Like I feel I, like those numbers are conservative rather than generous. I feel like you, okay. you probably have a lot more people in those collateral duties, Possible. like the ATF, DEA, but... But okay, we'll say that, that your numbers are so we'll, okay. We're gonna so we're at nineteen yeah, eight right now. Yeah, we're gonna get down. Let's subtract another another two hundred. What are we at right now? So we're at nineteen six. Nineteen six. All right, and then let's just throw in another one hundred that just for whatever reason there was an emergency that came up in their life and they just didn't show up to work today, right? So okay. Not what are we at nineteen five. Right? Yep. Now now we work three shifts. So divide that number by three. Oh, what God. do you got? <laughs> um nineteen five divided by three, we're at sixty five hundred. Sixty five hundred actual physical agents on duty coast to coast, north to south. Protecting your board. At any given time. Dude. During one shift, yeah. Now you start subtracting uh, guys that are actually doing casework, guys that are actually transporting people that they have been apprehended back to the station. And this is where things got really complicated, and this is a long-winded way of getting to the, the question. But during these surges, you've heard of these surges where we're getting literally tens of thousands a day. Right, yeah. The southern border. For every agent that's tied up um, with unaccompanied children in getting that timeline where we we identify that they're in our custody and then lining up getting them out of our custody into the appropriate child services who then take them right uh for every agent that's involved in that is an agent that's not out there with binoculars in their hand right 
So you can right. see we could we could extrapolate this conversation into infinity, but you can see how those numbers of actual enforcement agents are can be seriously knocked down at any given time. So to answer your question, um, the number one thing that I, as a employee and as an agent, believe is the most important aspect of the agency's mission is the people, and we could use resources to hire more people. So the question is begged, why would anybody work for this agency if we're not on pay parity with, say, DEA or the ATF or even CBP, Customs Board Protection, the other side of the house? Uh, they're all getting paid overtime. FBI works. Why do you think it wasn't reviewed whenever – we had a, and I, I try really hard, especially given that you're an agency that deals with a multitude of factors. I try to stay apolitical for you because your job is not political and it should not be politicized. No. However, no. if I were to interject politics into your role, I would say that the left probably isn't very supportive of the Border Patrol and the right is and when I say the left and the right, I, I'm speaking more generally about the public than I am about politics. Because Congress, right. I feel like they're they're they just really are in their own pockets. They really don't care about anybody else. Period. Across the country, regardless of what your job is. But well, it's my sorry. Go ahead. My question is, why do you think that this wasn't reviewed when there was a Republican-majority Congress as well as the executive branch? Why do you think that this wasn't something that was that was fixed at that time? Well, as as with most change in, in Washington, um, there's usually something in the headlines before there's an act of Congress, right? And so there was a, a whistleblower that came forward. Uh, inside of our agency, um, I don't know, like five or six years ago. And previously, before this change happened, we were paid what was called administratively uncontrollable overtime. And our agents were given a 25%, um, like, on top of their base salary, they were given an additional 25% to their regular salary. And then if they went past, like, 10 hours, say once you hit 10 hours of, of work, um, you, you continue to get that, that, uh, what's called Fair Labor Standards Act, FLASA pay. So if you work 16 hours during a shift, which isn't unheard of in this profession, um, you were compensated financially. Um, that all went away because there were essentially members in that administrative class, and I'm talking about people that are like in the academy and people that are in, say, Washington, D.C., who aren't on patrol, who uh, by virtue of all of us being under the same pay parity, pay scale, um, we're getting that administrative overtime, right? But they weren't mm -hmm. technically on patrol. So this um, went up for congressional review. It went through what's called the Office of Personal Management. And the, uh, the wonks over there, they can only – do what the law says. There is, as far as apolitical organizations go, you can't find one more apolitical than OPM, I don't believe. I mean, they simply just look at what does the law say and what do we do with it, you know? So they're looking at it and they're saying, well, how do we justify these people that are in offices getting this, this type of pay versus people that are actually supposed to be having it out in the field? And then once that 
question was asked and once it was out there playing political football with it and it went through the congressional channels during the Gang of Eight and all that kind of stuff, it was like going to be a writer and they were going to say, well, we'll do the pay parity if we get the, the amnesty or the, you know, um, what was it, the Dreamer Act, the Dream Act, remember all that? Like this was all mm-hmm. kind of happening simultaneously. So um, we had a congressman out of Texas named Congressman Will Hurd. And um, I think he's he's decided he's had enough and he's not up for re-election. But um, good dude. I, I don't always agree with every position that he takes. Um, he's probably been just, you know, uh, scolded in the public arena recently for some of his comments on these issues that we are discussing today. But I, I'm here to tell you, like, he actually tried to fix us. He, he had the herd bill, uh, the pay reform bill, where he tried to get us on pay parity with our other uh, brother and sister agencies like the DEA, the ATF, and the FBI. Uh, they all get different types of pay, like LEAP pay, which is availability pay. So if you have to work overtime, you're compensated. Uh, it's mandated. It's, I think it's called 45 Act. It's actually U.S. Code 45 something or other, and they actually are forced to pay you overtime compensation. Um, so all these things were addressed. In fact, I believe uh, one of the members of the U.S. National Cultural Council, John Amphitson, went before Congress and testified in a subcommittee on this very issue back in 2018. And there, you can't find a more knowledgeable or professional person than John Amphitson. He's, he's right at the top of of the, you know, the cream rising to the top as far as advocacy for this agency. Um, and he spoke to Congress, and still here we are. Um, so when we talk about answering the question of resources, if you don't take care of the people that are doing the job, all the equipment, all the walls, all the cameras, all the lights, satellites. It doesn't mean shit. Yeah, we could be. I could be driving around in a Tesla vehicle tomorrow, and if they're not taking care of me, I'm going to go work for HSI. I'm going to go work for ATF. As soon as they open up jobs, State Department, I'm gone, right? My education, right. my experience, my training, uh, those guys would take me instantly, you know, provided I, I meet their standards. But, I mean, I'm just saying that as one of an example. So how do we retain how do we retain agents? And let's get you. So that, that, that brings me to my next question. Like, do you guys have a, a high risk, like rate of, of turnover? Yes. We have a, a, a greater than 6% attrition rate, which doesn't sound like a lot. But when you look at most police agencies, yeah. especially federal, it's lower than 3%. So we're double the attrition rate right. of any other agency, right? Like, once you're FBI, you stay FBI, right, unless something better comes along. Um, but I mean, not just on the attrition scale, right? I don't think a lot of our guys leave the patrol based on just the pay because most of the guys that take this job, we're not just here for the pay. I could probably make with my skill set, my education, uh, I could probably make equal to or greater in, in the private sector or otherwise. Um, I'm here because I want to be here. I'm here because I choose to be here. I do this job because I love this job. I do this job because I'm passionate about supporting and advocating for uh, the man and the woman to my left and the right, you know? Uh, it's it's yeah. about a brotherhood. I mean, I, I love it. I absolutely um, love what I do. And it's because I, from an early age, you know, growing up uh, in, in America, um, seeing the – you know, what, what it is to be an American. I mean, it's just instilled in me. I mean, I, I came into, you know, the Boy Scouts. I was a scout. I mean, all of the, the service to one's country and being a good citizen 
and, you know, the, the scout oath and the scout law, I mean, those things are tattooed into my morals. You know, they, they're there forever. And so segueing into the military was just a natural thing for me. And then segueing into federal law enforcement, it's just a shoe that fits perfectly for me. And I love challenges, and I wanted to do something that was the biggest challenge. And so, I mean, the Border Patrol is it. I mean, it's it's one of the hardest agencies to get into, and it's one of the hardest ones to be successful in. And here I am, you know, over a decade into it. So, uh, give or take, you know. Um, but, I mean, back, I, get, I get way off base. Back to, to the question of, of the turnover. Let, let's get back to that. Um, most of us have to live in very austere communities. If you think about the expanse of the U.S. southern border uh, with Mexico, right, Um not a lot of big towns. Like, if you think of the largest town uh, in Texas as close to the border, would probably be San Antonio, right? Big city, like one that everybody in America would know. Everybody knows the Alamo, right? Everybody's heard the stories of the San Antonio Spurs and, you know, their their championship. But most people, if you were to ask them to find Eagle Pass, Texas, on a map, they'd have to Google that, right? Uh, if I right. said, I want, you, I want you to find Del Rio, Texas, on a map, right? If I said I want you to find McAllen, Texas, on a map. If I said I want you to find Lordsburg, New Mexico, on a map, right? If I wanted you to find El Centro, California, on a map. You see the challenges there. Um, now, I again, as open source for your audience, please go look at these places. Do a Google search of U.S. Border Patrol stations along the U.S. southern border and look at the cities that we are deployed to, where we do our jobs and where we bring our families and where we raise our families and and look at the the, the austerity in those conditions like uh date night for most guys anywhere um along the border you have to get in a car and drive an hour and a half just to get someplace that you can actually you know uh have something that you you want to do i mean that's not a, a an unfounded statement you know um like a, a good restaurant. I'm not saying there's not a good place to eat, but, I mean, there's certainly there's not a P.F. Chang's. Listen, I saw the food that you're eating for dinner, so I'm I'm <laughs> worried about you. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, I, I'm a bit of a caveman. I was a soldier, so you give me a rucksack <laughs> and uh, an MRE, uh, I'm good to go. I mean, water doesn't even Or a pizza sure. and some Reese cups. That's dinner. <laughs> oh, man, that's me. Yeah, that's, that's it. Like, you know, you give me... I'll, I'll eat that all day long. I love truck stop pizza, you know, Reese's. Yeah, that's me. So, but, um, you know, you have to have a positive mental attitude and you have to find those things that are simple pleasures that you, you, you revel in those moments. You, you actually get to sit still and eat a meal instead of driving, you know, 70 miles an hour trying to wolf down a sandwich while you're trying to get to where you need to be. So those, those little, uh, reveries for me, I, I really, want the world to see those and, and understand the life of law enforcement, not just Border Patrol, but think of all the police officers out there that eat by the red light of their dash every night while their families are at home without them at the dinner table, you know? Every right. Sunday night, every Saturday night, you know, dad's out there, mom's out there, wearing body armor, carrying weapons and, you know, enforcing their community's laws, enforcing their nation's laws, enforcing their state's laws, you know? Um, when you say good bye to mom and dad when they walk out the door with that body armor on. 
you know, it's not a guarantee that you're going to say hello to them again. Right. And then all too often, and, and especially in this culture right now, uh, it's happening more frequently than, than it should. In fact, I don't believe it should ever happen, but, uh, you know, we know what we're up against and we signed up for this. So, but, uh, but yeah, I think one of the attrition things in our agency is the austerity. And I think that, that has been addressed. In fact, recently our administrators, our policymakers and, and through, um, being able to get the latitudes of funding and, and earmark funding for different uh, places and working with Office of Personnel Management and all these wonks that get to decide where the beans get to go, they have been giving uh, bonuses, uh, retention bonuses to agents. And so there is a financial compensation. Our agency is doing everything it can to retain this wonderful talent that they've recruited and trained and deployed, and rightly so. Um, could there be more? Action from our Congress, obviously. Could Congress take a better look at what they've done, just like they did in 1924, and then looked at it again in the 1960s, 1980s, and said, oh, we meant well then, but we can improve it now. Well, pay parity for their agents out here should be reviewed again. I, I hope that uh, the the sound minds of our elected representatives would revisit that and say maybe we should take a better look at this, you know. I mean, opening that door could obviously uh, open us up to less pay, but I'm willing to take the risk, you know. Let, leave it up right. to the representative government. So, hope that answered that question. It did. And before I let you go, I want to touch on your partner who has an injury. And is he doing well? And when do you expect him back? Yes. Do you have a replacement partner for right now? No, you know, or No, he's 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 out for surgery and uh we have to leave that up to the surgeons to determine whether or not he's he's gonna return. But uh he's in good spirits and his prognosis is, is good and he will uh undoubtedly be well cared for upon his return. So I miss him dearly. So do you get to keep him? Like if for some yeah. reason they declare that he's out of commission, does he become yours? Do you get to Forever. keep him at home? Yes. yes. That's for, for, so for, awesome. for your audience that's wondering what we're talking about, I don't get to keep him. Oh, yeah. Him. I'm sorry. I guess I should have <laughs> the fact that it's a dog. <laughs> no, I, 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 partner. I, have a, I have a and my partner for many years now. Um, our, our animals do get injured upon time, and, and my animals suffered a catastrophic injury, but it's not surgically unrepairable. He's in wonderful hands. In fact, the military is taking him, and they're going to, uh, to make him faster and stronger and better. I'm going to have to rename him, uh, what was that guy from the $6 million man, Steve Austin, or am I thinking of? Right. Yeah. You know, dun, 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 dun. maybe I'm showing my age now when I was a kid, but uh, I have the bionic dog. Right? I was going to say the bionic dog. That's what I was going to say. But no, he's um, he's actually on his way right now. I would think today um, for that surgical. So, but he's uh, yeah. Either way, um, deep down inside, I'd love to have him back with me out there every single day, but there's a side of me that says he's earned his retirement, and I hope that they medically retire him so that I can give him the best retirement I can possibly give him because he's definitely deserving of some uh, some downtime, some R&R &R time. Well, and I'm and sure those little girls will certainly yeah. treat him the way he needs to be treated. You know, and I, I can't think of anybody better to stand guard over my family while I'm out there doing my mission than, than my Oh, partner. good. I, I would feel wonderful knowing that he's uh, – 
delightfully employed in the man cave here, watching old reruns and westerns and whatever the, the kids want to watch Just getting, uh, just getting fat and probably having his nails painted pink and bows and ribbons put behind his ears. I think that would be just phenomenal. Poor little guy. Well, thank you so much for coming on with me. I very much appreciate you and and taking the time and working with me on the technical difficulties beforehand. And I I would love to have you on again in the future, um, especially if we start seeing some legislation on some immigration and border enforcement and things like that. If you don't mind me keeping you on retainer, I would love to to keep you in the conversation. Fantastic. Well, again, I mean, thank you for your work. Thank you for your advocacy for uh, for voices that sometimes get drowned out by, um, you know, other voices and giving me an opportunity just to express my thoughts, my opinions, um, and, and my uh, personal experiences, uh, you know, in the life of, of what it is we do here in law enforcement. And I, I'm thankful for your audience and uh, thankful for their attention. And um, please just understand that, um the men and women that are out there in uniform, uh, we absolutely love what we do, and you can depend upon us, and we uh, we need your voice. We need your advocacy on both sides, and apolitically. Um, these issues that I see before us, they're, they're not red and blue. They're red, white, and blue. Right. Thank I couldn't have said that better myself. Thank you so much, Luke. You take care of yourself. Yes, ma'am. Appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course. Others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!